You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus, looking around, and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so welcome. Uh, We are continuing the Gospel of Mark. And you know what I find fitting about this passage this morning is that the first title uh, before verse 13 is, Let the Children Come to Me. Uh, This week, today, and for the foreseeable future, we have the joy and privilege of welcoming the fifth and sixth graders into our service. So would you guys give them a warm welcome? So kids, here's what I want you to know. I'm talking to, to you all today. Really, we're just, we're just kind of props in this thing. It's really about you guys and about what God is doing through the next generation. So here's, here are two things that I really want you to understand as you're joining us this morning. The first is this, that you're a gift to our church and an important part of our growth as adults. Uh, a famous author named G.K. Chesterton once said that he learned more from watching children play than he ever did from all of the books and philosophy that he ever read. 
You know what I find interesting is whenever Jesus wanted to teach his adult disciples a very important lesson, guess what he did? He welcomed a child right into the center of the conversation, and he said, look at them. Learn from them. So here's a, here's a reasonable expectation. An expectation is that you are here to learn, but there's two sides of that coin. We're here to learn from you and to learn about what God is doing in the world through the perspective of children. The second thing is this. You're not just the future of our church. You are a part of this church, a vital part of this church. You belong to the family. In fact, some of the disciples, as we read here this morning, some of the disciples thought that being with Jesus was like an adults-only thing. Did you catch that in the reading? In fact, they tried to keep the kids out of the service. Now, I'm going to tell you, none of the adults around you would ever try to do that. Shame on them if they did. But there are some dis disciples that thought that kids were going to be a distraction, that kids were going to be a hindrance to the kingdom furthering, and they actually tried to, to keep them out. And it says in this passage that Jesus grew very mad, indignant. It's not just angry, but very angry. So here, here's something to consider, kids. Do you know what makes Jesus really angry? If I'm reading this right, it's not kids being kids. What makes Jesus really angry is when adults think that the kingdom of God is theirs to control. And it's their say about who's in and who's out. Listen to the words of Jesus. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. We are not inviting you to come in and get in on what we got going on. If anything here, we're trying to get in on what you guys, what you kids have going on here. So we'd like to welcome you to be a part of this. We'd like to challenge you to remain engaged and focused and to keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen? Okay, so what this next portion of Mark is showing us is how we together can get in on this. And what I'm going to do is we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at entering the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom, and then receiving the kingdom. Entering the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom, receiving the kingdom. This is three ways of saying essentially the same thing, but three different ways of saying it. And uh, this sort of entrance of the kingdom is like a, a diamond with multifaceted multi diamond that we want to see from a, different, a few different angles today. So let's look first at entering into the kingdom. Now, Mark has really been emphasizing a few things as we've walked through the, the gospel of Mark. The first of which is answering the question, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom when we talk about the kingdom of God? Jeremy Treat, who was here just a few weeks ago from uh, Reality Los Angeles, he defines the kingdom of God like this. He says the kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's rule and reign through God's people over God's place. The kingdom of God is the life and the light and the healing freedom of heaven coming to earth and welcoming us to dwell with God and to rule with him. We've also been looking at how the kingdom functions, that this is a very different kind of kingdom. If, if we imagine a kingdom in our mind, it's probably wrong. All the other kingdoms that we've ever seen throughout history and into the fairy tales and all those sort of things are not the kind of kingdom that Jesus is describing here. The kingdom that Jesus is describing is the kind of place where you become small to become great, where the first is last and the last is first. In order to live, you have to die. To save your life, you got to lose it. It's a weird kingdom. Very weird. And it operates very different. 
But in this portion of Mark, uh, it, it really answers an important question, a question that we must all at some point answer for ourselves. And the question is, how do we enter it? How do we enter the kingdom? We could talk about the kingdom of God until we're blue in the face, but we know that there's a huge difference between knowing about the kingdom and being a part of the kingdom. And Jesus is welcoming us not to know about the kingdom, but to enter into the kingdom. And so that's really what, uh, what question we're going to answer this morning. How do we enter? But first, I want to share a story. When I was a kid, uh, I remember watching the movie Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Not the weird Johnny Depp one the even weirder uh, one that was made in the 70s. And so you know the story, Willy Wonka, it's, uh, it's a very mysterious man, and he owns this chocolate factory with a lot of mystery around it, and he sends out these five golden tickets randomly into the world, hidden in the inside of chocolate bars. And what the golden ticket means is an invitation to come and tour the factory and, and to potentially win a life, uh, lifetime supply of chocolate. And so, you know, these kids, these five kids and their guardians are standing out front and all the eyes of the world are on this unnamed city where they're, you know, these kids are about to enter into the factory. And there's a ton of mystery because no one has ever been in. What's it like? What's it going to be like? No one knew. It was said that no one ever went in, no one ever came out. And so there's this moment where they finally enter in and they sign this long liability release and they're, they're entering into a hallway and this hallway begins to be narrower and narrower and narrower until all of the people are sort of uh, cramped in there shoulder to shoulder. And then he points to a little tiny door and he says, just through this door is the nerve center of my factory, the heart of my kingdom where all your dreams become reality. The the greatest thing that you could ever imagine becomes reality. But the problem is it's this, this tiny little door. And Mrs. Gloop says, you're not squeezing me through that tiny door. And then Mr. Salt says, you're off your bleating nut, Wonka. No one's getting in there. Now, I'm not sure what off your bleeding nut means, so I apologize if that's offensive to any of your British friends. But here's, here's the sentiment amongst the adults. We're not getting through there. And what this, what this illustrates is really something that we see here in Mark. It's an impossibly small door that opens us to an unimaginably great kingdom. Impossibly small door to an unimaginably great kingdom. And here we discover these disciples astonished and asking essentially, how on earth is anyone getting in? How is anyone going to get in? And Jesus reminds them in verse 27, with man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. The Bible tells us that through sin, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. They were kicked out of the garden. The garden, as the Bible describes, was a place where God dwelt with humanity, dwelt with people in what was this paradise kingdom. Freedom and life and joy and fulfillment uh, really filled this, this place. It was the kind of place where all of our greatest dreams were a reality and so much more. But sin, which we've all participated in, sin caused humanity to be driven out of the kingdom, pushed east of Eden, and what God did was he actually established these cherubim angels to guard the way back into this paradise kingdom. And while no one knows the exact location of uh, Eden, and 
very, very few people have ever actually embarked on the journey to, do, to go and discover the geographical location of Eden. But in a sense, we all, whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you're a child, whether you're an adult, we all in some way have been trying to return ever since. We're trying to make our way back into the kingdom that we were created for. We're homesick, looking for a home. Just a couple days ago, I was listening to the radio, a new song. Some, some guy is writing to his girl, and he says, I bought a house to live in, but you're the home I'm missing. And it really illustrates that we're looking for a home. We're looking for a place to place our soul, and we're looking, but we're looking in all the wrong places. It's even been said before that the young man that knocks on the door of the brothel is really knocking for God. We're searching to find our way back home, but we're looking in the wrong places. And so the question remains, how do we enter? Is there somewhere that we must go? Is there something that we need to do? How do we get in here? And this phrase of entering the kingdom appears four times in the passage that we're looking at today. So Mark intends for us to pay attention. And really, I think the key to answering this question is found in verse 15. Look at me in verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How do we enter the kingdom of God? Like children. Like children. But then this sort of raises the question, what, what about children is Jesus describing here? Because I've, I've heard and, and, and read many interpretations to this passage that some people believe that it requires childlike wonder about God and the world. Other people believe that it's really about like being like a child, not being jaded, but believing the best in people and that sort of thing. Childlike qualities that we find in children. However, Jesus doesn't seem to be commending childlike qualities and behavior because ask any parent, children are great, but there are also qualities and parts of children's behavior that are not so great. Kids can be short-tempered. Uh, kids can be demanding. Kids can be very selfish, just like their, uh, their adult contemporaries. So... Is, what, what is Jesus describing here when he talks about entering into the, the, to the kingdom like children? He's not describing childlike behavior as much as he's describing childlike dependence. Childlike dependence. Now, it's going to be probably sort of difficult for us to, to grasp the full weight of what's being said here because we don't live in the context of the first century. Today, children have rights. Children have provisions and privileges and protections uh, ch uh, children, culturally speaking, children are cherished and are seen as adding value to the family. Even in many homes, and unfortunately even in Christian homes, children are essentially uh, ruling the home. The child's sleep schedule, the child's sports schedule, the child's uh, school schedule, the, the child's wishes. I've walked into homes where it's very clear the child is ruling the roost. So that's kind of our context. That's sort of our culture. We need to get out of that mindset. The world of the first century was very different. In the first century, children did not have the same rights and the same privileges and the protections that they have today. Children were not seen as cute. Children were not cherished. In fact, a very prevalent practice in the Roman Empire was the practice of infanticide, where if you were looking to have a son to carry on you know, the family name and you had a daughter, that child could be discarded, just cast out um, into the elements. 
So it was a very common thing for children to be looked down upon without rights, without privileges. Children were extremely vulnerable. Children were extremely dependent upon the mercy and care and generosity of others. So, children are those who offer need. So here it comes back to the question for us, what do we need to enter into the kingdom of God? And here's the answer, you need need. Let me say it a different way. All you need is need. We have in our minds that to advance in life is to grow self-sufficient. That's the way we've been conditioned. We're independent. We live in a nation that has been formed on the idea of independence. So in our minds, to progress, to advance in life, is to be weaned off of dependence, to be weaned off of the care of other people. But that's not the way that it works in the kingdom of God. We see something very different. Progress is not needing Jesus and his community less. Progress in the kingdom of God is recognizing and embracing our need for Jesus and the believing community all the more. In fact, I love this. Jesus calls his own disciples, the apostles of the church, Peter, the rock, John, the apostle who is They try to boil, ends up living, and then writes the book of Revelation. These are some tough individuals, and yet Jesus says, children, in verse 24, we never advance beyond the status of child. We just grow further into it. In fact, listen to the words of the apostle John in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What a privilege for God to look on us and say, you are my child. What an honor. I love the way that C.H. Spurgeon put it. It's sort of a long quote. Christ's teaching was not that there is something in us to fit us for the kingdom, And that a certain number of years may make us capable of receiving grace. His teachings all went the other way. Namely, that we are to become nothing, to be nothing. And that the less we are and the weaker we are, the better. For the less we have of ourselves, the more room there is for his divine grace. Do you think to come to Jesus up the ladder of knowledge? Come down. You'll meet him at the foot. Do you think to reach Jesus up the steep hill of your experience? Come down, dear climber. He stands in the plain. Oh, but when I'm old, I shall then be prepared for Christ. Stay where thou art. Jesus meets thee at the door of life. You were never more fit to meet him than just now. He asks nothing of you but that you will be nothing and that he may be all in all to you. That is his teaching. That is the blessed doctrine of the grace of God. That is what Jesus is saying. Come as nothing. An attempt to enter into the kingdom of God in our own strength, in our own knowledge, in our own accomplishment, in our own greatness and bigness is pointless. Why? Because as Jesus describes here, the entrance into the kingdom is small. It's impossibly small. That's what he's describing and illustrating with the camel going through the eye of the needle. There have been those throughout uh, church history that have tried to describe this and say, uh, just uh, sort of dis- disregard what Jesus is saying here. That, you know, you got to understand that there was actually a gate into Jerusalem ca- called the eye of the needle. And the camels would come in with these things full on their back. And they'd have to release 
That, that's fake. There's no historical evidence that that was ever the case. Guess what Jesus is saying here? Just what it sounds like he's saying here. That it's harder for a camel to move through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I know for some of us, you're saying, I'm far from rich, but statistically speaking, looking at the entire wealth of the world, we're, most of us are in the top 10. We're rich. Living one of the richest nations in the, in, in the history of the world. Impossibly small. Therefore, it may only be entered by those who know that they're helpless. It may only be entered by those who humble themselves and decrease and who by faith become nothing so that Christ may be their everything. What did did, uh, John the Baptist say? Let me decrease and you increase. Amen? You guys still with me today? Okay. Prove it. (laughs) If you like it, say amen. All right. Let's look at the second point. Inheriting the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom. Now, if this scene with the children taught us about what it means to enter into the kingdom, this, this scene with the rich young man teaches us about what it means to inherit the kingdom. Look at me in verses 17 through 20. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, he said to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And so in this, in this account here, we see a young man that by most standards in his time and even in our own time, This is an individual that we would consider winning. This is someone who is winning in life. He's young. He's rich. He's got his life put together. Some of the other gospel writers say that he's a ruler. He's someone with power and authority in the community. And the interesting thing is, to the religious community at this time, they believed that his success was a result of God's favor upon his obedience. They wrongly assumed that if you had material wealth, if you had success in your life, if you were hashtag winning, that you must have done something right. God must have looked down from heaven and said, that's what I'm talking about, and then poured out the blessing. Wrongly assumed that. And here's the thing. This rich young ruler is now beginning to be suspicious about that way of thinking. He's beginning to be a little bit suspicious about what we call today the prosperity gospel. He's seeing the hole in it. He's seeing the emptiness in it. He runs to Jesus. He honors him with his lips. He bends the knee as a display of honor. But when he opens his mouth, we begin to see what's beneath that sort of thin veneer of religious pageantry. And in his question, we find some things, some errors. We find some foundational errors in in the way that we're to approach God, but we also find some deep insecurity. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now think about that question. What must I do? So already, we see something going wrong here. He believes that life and eternity in the kingdom of God is something that can be earned. But the scriptures make it really clear. Jesus' teaching make it really clear. The 
the kingdom of God is not a matter of earning. Our place in the kingdom of God is received, not achieved. Amen? Received, not achieved. That's the very nature of an inheritance. It's gifted. We don't earn an inheritance like we earn a paycheck. A paycheck means that you put in your time, you turn in your timesheet, you get your paycheck. An inheritance is completely different. An inheritance is something that is gifted to sons and daughters, gifted to the children born into the family. It's the sum total of a parent or the parents or uh, uh, recent generations their accomplishments, what they have worked hard for, what they have fought for, being passed down as a gift to the next generations, what they have achieved being gifted. He asks, what must I do? That's the wrong question. If you're here this morning asking God, what do I need to do to be a part of your family? What do I need to do to inherit all that you give? It's the wrong question. When we're talking about an inheritance, the right question is, what family do I belong to? See, if, if, if maybe some of you have friends that have uh, you know, rich parents and the inheritance is coming down, we may joke and say, man, what do I need to do to get in on that? But at the end of the day, it's a joke because there's nothing that you're going to do to get in on that short of being adopted into the family. There's nothing you could do to earn it. Also, the, the, despite the fact that he's been obedient, he says himself, all, all these things I've kept. Jesus asks him, he says, here's, all the, you know, here's a list of the commandments. He says, all these things I've, I've kept. Jesus doesn't even uh, challenge him. Jesus doesn't say, well, I saw the other day you actually talked back to your parents, and so I'm, I've been watching you. He actually lets that statement go, all these things I have kept. And yet he's asking, is there more? All these things I've kept, but is there more? I've done it all, but is there more? Now, that's interesting because despite the fact of what the religious community had really taught him in his upbringing, he is experiencing a growing angst and a nagging feeling that all of his best efforts, all of the things that he has done right are just not enough. I've kept them all, and yet I'm still asking, is there more? Is there more? Is there more? See, this is the consequence when we approach God based on our own accomplishments. This is the consequence when we stake our eternity on our own performance. This is the consequence when we try to earn God's favor. It's just never enough. It never adds up. There's always that sinking, nagging feeling that there's something more to be done. No matter how well you perform, that nagging feeling still remains. He sounds confident. I mean, I picture this individual as this young man, he, you know, he's puffed up, he's got his peacock feathers out, he's coming to Jesus, look at all I've done. He sounds self-confident, but actually what we see in his speech is deep insecurity. The rich young ruler is deeply insecure, and here's why I say so. He asks about the inheritance. Now think about this with me. Who asks about the inheritance? It's typically those who are insecure about their place in the family. Those who fear that they may have fallen out of favor and wondering, is my name still in the will? I've seen this carried out in my own extended family. Everyone is on their tip-top best behavior when? When the patriarch is in his final years. 
Everyone's doing everything right, showing up to every Christmas function and every uh, family photo. They're present. Oh my gosh, loving each other. Why? Because they know one call to the attorney could strike their name from the will and change their future forever. Insecure. When we approach God like this, trying to earn his grace, trying to stay in his, on his good side, trying to stay in God's will, then it leads to spiritual anxiety and emotional burden. It may appear to be Christianity. It may result in some roof falling. It may even bend the knee to Jesus from time to time. But at its core, it's not Christianity. If your life looks like the rich young ruler, you need to question whether or not you're actually in the family yourself. Because it appears to be obedient, appears to be Christianity, appears to have everything together, and yet at the end of the day, it's deeply insecure, it's deeply fearful, and the love of God casts out fear like this. Children don't fear. Children don't wake up every day. Am I going to be removed from my father's will? It's proving that he's never been a part of the family in the first place. So perhaps this has been your experience. I have to imagine this. I've heard from you. This has been many of your experiences. This anxiety about what God thinks, that God's decision about you, God's feelings about you change on an everyday basis with your obedience or your disobedience. And then we wonder why Christianity is so dissatisfying. And we wonder why we're so disillusioned by this whole Christianity thing. Perhaps it's because we've approached God like the rich young ruler. The inheritance that God offers us comes to us as a gift of grace. And it comes to us as a, uh, through an invitation to become sons and daughters through faith, being adopted into the family of God. The inheritance of God is not a matter of earning, it's a matter of trusting. And this is the good news that's laid out for us in 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. He caused us to be to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Undefiled, unfading, kept, protected for you. Years ago, there was a uh, father and a son, very wealthy father, and they both shared a, a love for collecting art. And they would travel the world collecting millions of dollars with the art, Monet and, and these different artists. And the unfortunate thing is their country went into war and the son was enlisted to fight. And within a few weeks of being on the front line of battle, he actually lost his life. And the father was at home one day and he got a knock on the door and a young man pierced the door and he says, I actually fought with your son in the war. And on a short time in, on the front lines, I, I, I actually drew this portrait of your son. He said, it's nothing special, but it, I hope that it means something to you. And it, was, it, it became his fa the father's most cherished, precious piece of art. About a year later, he grew ill and died, and his entire estate went up for auction. And there was a big buzz in the art community about this estate going up for auction because of these, these, these priceless pieces. And so the day of the auction came, and everyone's there, and there's a bunch of excitement, and the auctioneer begins with the painting that the man gave to the father, uh, a portrait of the son. And he says, we're beginning the auction with this portrait. And the room grew silent. No one cared. 
In fact, someone from the back said, who cares? We're here for the good stuff. We're here for the expensive stuff. And the man said, no, we actually have to auction off this first. And so the one-time gardener of the man says, I've only got 10 bucks. I've got 10 bucks. That's all I have. But I knew the boy and I would like the portrait. And the auctioneer said, all right, $10. Do I, do I see 15 going, going, gone? And the auctioneer closed the books and he said, all right, thank you folks for coming. We are done. And everyone's just like, what is going on? You haven't even got to the good stuff. What, what is the point here? And, and the auctioneer responded, well, actually, a, a, according to the will of this man, whoever had this painting would inherit the entire estate, including the paint, all of the paintings that you are here for. It states very clearly in his will right here, whoever receives my son gets it all. Whoever receives my son gets it all. This is the good news of God's kingdom. How do we enter God's kingdom and receive all of the inherit, uh, eternal blessings of the kingdom? The scriptures talk about treasures in heaven, the wealth of heaven. The scriptures talk about the pleasures of heaven. Even the greatest pleasures that we experience in this world are just a dim reflection of the pleasures that we should experience at the right hand of God in glory. The scriptures talk about the glory that is to come and the praise and the renown and even dominion that is to come. How do we inherit these things? By receiving his only son, Jesus. Whoever receives his son gets it all. Gets it all. Let's look finally at receiving the kingdom. Receiving the kingdom. Now, there is a bit of tension in this portion of Jesus' teaching. I've got to admit that. Uh, and it's this, that while there's nothing that we can do to earn God's kingdom, there is something, however, we must do to receive it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There is something that we must do to receive it. Now, before I explain what I mean by that, Jesus tells this rich young man, he says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. And so the question is, what is that one thing? And I read a lot of commentary on this, and there's actually a debate about what Jesus is talking about. And it's not very clear what Jesus is talking about when he says you lack one thing. But here's something we ought to know by now. We ought to know by now that when we're talking about the kingdom of God, that the answer is not always going to be obvious. The thing that this young man lacks is not going to be the thing that this young man thinks that he lacks. By all standards, he's got everything. Think about it. Riches. Youth, power, prestige. He's religiously devout. He's respected in his community. So the question remains, what does he lack? And here's, here's my best answer at this. He lacks lack. He's got it all, but he lacks lack. Listen to how one author put it. If we come to God with empty hands, he will fill them. If we come with full hands... He finds no place to put himself. It's our beggary, our receptivity that is our hope. Remember, in the kingdom of God, we are emptied to be filled. We come empty-handed to receive. And if we don't grasp that dynamic here, then Jesus calling him to empty his hands and to give everything that he has away is not going to make any sense. So how do we receive the kingdom of God? by taking our trust and taking our devotion off lesser things and clinging to Jesus and putting that trust and putting that hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. 
There was a 17th century philosopher named Blaise Pascal who developed the idea of the wager. And the wager, in its simplest form, is this, that we're all betting on something. We've all put our chips on something, consciously or not. The only option that we don't have is to not bet. There is something or someone that we have been looking to to bring us ultimate joy, to bring us true freedom, to bring lasting peace. It's very clear from this young man's life that it's his riches, it's his wealth. And this is at the heart of Jesus saying, give it all up. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, give all your stuff away. He's saying, change your bet. You went all in on this, all your chips are on this corner, but I want you to change your bet. I'm calling you to change your bet. You've been betting on what will perish. He's young. Guess what? That's going to perish. He's rich. Guess what? That's going to perish. He's respected in his community. Guess what? That's going to perish. Thus far, you've been betting on things that are perishing. But what I want you to do is to stake your bet on what's going to last. See, Jesus is, is reasonable. Jesus is wise when it comes to, Jesus is a wise investor. And he's calling us to be wise investors of our lives as well. He's saying, invest your trust, invest your life, invest your everything in the place where it's going to guarantee you a good return. Invest yourself where you're going to be guaranteed treasures in heaven. Invest yourself in the place where even you will find provisions today within the community. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says that you will receive hundredfold back in this life. What does he mean? He means as we're giving our lives away in the community, we're also sharing it. My thing is your thing. Your thing is our thing. It's not just one financial budget. It's a hundred financial budgets. It's a hundredfold resources being shared in the community. And God is saying, put your bet on that. For this man, what does he need to do to receive the kingdom? He needs to give up his loyalty and his trust in his money and his possession. And I would venture to say that many of us need to too. And one of the ways, primary ways that God accomplishes this in our life, uh, causing us to give up our loyalty and trust in money, is by calling us to give and give generously. When, when Jesus calls us to give our lives away, when Jesus calls us to give to the poor, when the scriptures talk about tithing and giving to the church, it's not about just meeting the need. What is God doing? He's reinforcing trust in our hearts. It was Jesus himself who said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you fling your gold, your heart is tethered to it. And when you fling your gold into the kingdom of God, there goes your heart flinging towards it as well. So when God calls us to give, he's actually saying, this is the way that I'm going to secure your loyalty and your trust to my kingdom. Look at me, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. What does he say? He says, go and give all so that you can come and follow and receive all. So here's the tension. And if you're reading this and you're not shocked, you're not paying attention, honestly. You're numb and you're indifferent or you're just in la-la land. Listen to what Jesus is saying. I'm not going to try to, uh, well, let's look at the next verse. 
But the young man was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. So if you're stunned by this, you're not alone. It's intended to be stunning. It's intended to be jolting. It's intended to get to the core of your securities. Everything you've been building your life on, God just took a jackhammer to it and is breaking it in half. And if it doesn't hurt, again, you're not paying attention. Here's the paradox. And uh, kids, a paradox is two ideas that seem to be in conflict, but in the end actually complement one another. Here's the paradox of the kingdom of God. That receiving the kingdom is a gift of free grace that's going to cost you everything. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is a gift of free grace that's going to cost you everything. It's a gift that's going to lay claim of your everything. Your heart, your mind, your body, your resources, your relationships, your dreams, your future, your eternity, all of it. Jesus says, mine. So here's the question. Is Jesus saying, if you go and you sell all that you have, if you go and do this thing, then I will love you, and then I will accept you? No. In fact, it says that Jesus looked on him and loved him before he ever commanded him to get rid of his stuff. Jesus loved him first. And what Jesus is telling him is not what's gonna make Jesus love him. No, what Jesus is saying Because I love you, this is what I demand of you. And we need to solidify this in our mind and our hearts, that Jesus' demands always flow from his love and are attached to our truest freedom. Jesus will never call us to something that is dissected and and removed and detached from his love. It is always issuing and flowing from, from his love and his hope for our greatest good and our truest freedom. And we have to assume that this is what's going on here. And so the question comes to us today, I know that you're hoping that I answer this. Does it mean that we need to go and sell everything that we have and give it away? And I can't answer that for you. Because honestly, the answer may be maybe. Because if I read the scriptures right, following Jesus is never a a lifestyle of moderation. Jesus never calls us to moderate sacrifice. Jesus never says, give me half portions, give me a little bit here, give me a little bit there. He says, no, 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 I'm taking it all. I'm taking it all. So do we need to give up up everything we have and give it away? Maybe, but not necessarily. But here's, this is something that applies to all of us. It does mean that we must give up whatever, whatever stands in the way of total commitment to Jesus Christ and total dedication to the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus is calling us to today, to go all in on the kingdom of God. To go all in on the kingdom of God. No half measures, no half portions, all of it. So the question is, how can Jesus look at this man and call him to something as crazy as this? And I know because we're individuals, we're thinking the same thing. How can Jesus tell me to do such a crazy thing like this? And the answer, the simplest answer is this. It's because Christ gave it all for us. Because Jesus gave it all for us. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. He said, for you know, I hope you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus gave it all for us. 
Jesus gave his position in heaven. Jesus gave away his wealth. Jesus gave away his relationship with the Father. Jesus even shed his own blood. Who? For who? For us. For you and me. And as he looks at this rich young ruler in all of his wealth, he actually sees a dim reflection of himself. I think that there's like a a particular compassion for this young man. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, as we see from the scriptures, that Jesus was the truer, rich, young ruler. That in the face of going all in for the kingdom of God, did not walk away sorrowful, but went all in and laid it all down. And he gave it all for us to get us so that we could give our all to get him. I want to close with a story. Uh, The founder of the... uh, Moravian Church, which was a church movement in Europe in the 1700s, radically committed to the kingdom of God. These were some insane believers. Uh, One of the founders was a a young man named Nicholas, Count Nicholas, extremely rich. And so he did what any rich 19-year-old did. He traveled throughout Europe just visiting all the capitals and going to art museums and seeing some of the most exquisite, beautiful things in Europe. And one day, he's, he's at an art museum in Dusseldorf, and he walks up and he sees a, a painting by a, an author named Domenico Fetti. And it's a portrait of Jesus wearing the crown of thorns. It's titled, Behold the Man. And he says, as I stared at this portrait, my heart began to just be filled with awe and wonder. And I was being radically changed. It was, it was melting me. And he said, as he was staring at this picture, his eyes were drawn to this little overlooked inscription that had actually been written by the original uh, artist himself. And this is what the inscription said just underneath the portrait of Jesus with the crown of thorns. It said this, all this I did for thee. What dost thou for me? Let me translate that. I gave it all for you. Will you give it all for me? Will you give it all for me? And it changed the entire direction of his life. He gave away all of his wealth. He went, he poured himself out for the community and for the society around him. And he, he totally went broke for the kingdom of God. And so here's my challenge to us today. And it's this, it's only when we are gripped by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we're gonna be willing to follow him at all costs. This whole like, go give your stuff away and follow Jesus, it's not gonna make sense until our eyes and our hearts are captivated by the wonder of the cross where we see Jesus giving it all for us the treasures of heaven, his inheritance, relationship with the Father, and his own blood so that we can be a part of this family too, so that we could, through receiving the Son, receive the inheritance of heaven. Amen?